So before we uh, start, let's just um, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be here today with us, that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable to you. And as we talk about this really serious subject, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit will intervene. And if um, there are words that are spoken that are not glorifying to you, that um, these people would forget them easily. We just ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is allocation of limited resources. And I'm looking around because I uh, was standing in line yesterday with a man um, who asked me, you know, what I was talking on. And I told him this and he just burst out into this huge laughter. Um, So, boy, you're really taking on this topic, aren't you? Well, I've actually presented this here the last three years. And um, I think the Lord has given me some... Um, unique insight into this that I hope will be something that you can take away some parts of it with you and use in your own work. Uh, And also, I think um, this is a a very serious topic, Um, something that can be applicable to all different kinds of mission work, but I'm going to talk about allocating medical resources this morning. We can talk about allocation of, and you can apply these principles to allocation of human resources, financial resources, any other kind of resources that you are thinking about using in the work of Christ, but I'm going to specifically talk about allocation of medical resources this morning. I do want to tell you, uh, we can't sell books here, but I do have a book I've written. It has everything that I'm going to talk about in here, and uh, I'd really like for us all to, you, you can take notes if you want, but I'd be really happy to send each one of you the slide set if you wanted to just sit here and pay attention and talk. So I've put papers out over there. If you want to just put your sticker on afterwards. And do the stickers have emails on them or not? Okay. Uh, so if you would prefer to just listen to me this morning, um, that's completely fine. I'm happy to send this to you electronically, and you can um, you can review it afterwards and, and write, make some notes later. Also, if you're interested in the book, um, if you want to note that on there, I'll be glad to send you information. I can send it to you postpaid for $15. Um, and if you can't afford the book and you look at it and you want it, let me know that too because I'm happy to just send it to you. We do use it to support our work, but I really want the message to get out. So really when we talk about this this morning, it's I really trying to base the talk on This scripture from Matthew 10, which says, And if you even give a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. Um, This is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about serving the poor. We talk about justice, and allocation of resources is pretty central to the concept of justice. Um, We live in a fallen world, and as long as we are in this fallen world, We are not going to have true justice. Uh, We should work towards justice. We should do everything we can to get justice here on earth for the people who, especially those who cannot fight for themselves. But we need to understand that ultimately God's going to um, be the one who will impose the ultimate justice. However, as we work here, I think it's important that we remember that his great justice is the justice that will ultimately make everything new. And so as we think about how to allocate resources when you don't have all the resources that you need, that you want, or that you wish you had, remember that even in what you do, God is recreating things. He is making things new in the process of you giving a cup of cold water. This is a serious matter, and I really appreciate all of you getting up at 8.30 in the morning to talk about something that's really serious. Um, really enjoyed hearing Chuck last night, and he talked about a lot of really, really serious things. And um, he approached it in a way that's probably going to be different than how I approach serious matters this morning. Um, But I think all of these things are very, very important. And as I see young people sitting here, my heart is just so thrilled to think that you are the people that are really going to be hopefully completing the Great Commission. I mean, that is just so exciting to me. I, I think the Lord's coming is soon. I don't know when, but I do believe we will reach the end of the world and that the world will be have the gospel brought to it and then he will come. And I see the people in this audience who might be possibly part of that. So when you think about allocating resources when you don't have enough resources, it's important to remember that when you choose to help someone 
or one group or one person, you are choosing not to help someone else. And this is a serious decision. And when you're talking about allocation of healthcare resources, these are lives we're going to be talking about. These are individual people. We are literally going to be talking about life and death here. Um, the decisions that I've had to make um, in the work that we have done have cost people their lives. And that's just the bottom line. Um, and it's a burden that I, I don't take lightly. And it is a burden. However, I think the Lord has given me some experiences that have helped me to understand a way that we can approach this that will be of benefit to you. And part of the how I got interested in doing this was I was a novice in medical missions and Anyway, I had all these kind of negative experiences early in my career where I wasn't prepared. Um, people were well-intended, but we, we didn't really do a great job. Um, it seemed like we did, and people came home and were really excited, and, you know, they were changed, but I'm not sure that, you know, we really did what we needed to do from a medical point of view or even a spiritual point of view. And one day... Um, so I started leading medical trips and looking into all this stuff. And anyway, over a period of time, I, th I had this experience with a gynecologist we had on a trip with us. We go to Haiti. This is the poorest country in North and South America. Um, we worked in the poorest slum in North and South America. The average income there is about $250 a day. The average life expectancy is about 47, which is five years younger than me. Um, maternal mortality is 12%. 30% of the children there die before age five of preventable diseases. So it gives you a context of the serious poverty that we're working within. So I was in the clinic in this poor slum, and I had a gynecologist, OB gynecologist with us, and this woman came in who I think probably had placenta previa, about 20, 22 weeks pregnant, was exsanguinating really in front of us. Um, the OB worked at Duke, and, um, you know, we are a tertiary care medical center, and we have all the hot, latest technology. And she, um, I knew immediately what the scenario was going to be because of my experiences. So, anyway, we rushed her into the room. I was doing something else. Someone came and got me. She, uh, she was, like, wanting to really do a lot of things for this woman. It was very clear the baby was going to die. If we had any chance at all, we would be able to save the mother. But even then, I thought it was almost nothing that we could save her. She had bled out. Um, so the OB wanted to transport her to the hospital, put her, get her started on IV fluids. Um, she would pay for the surgery. She's, like, crying and very upset, and I'm, I'm sensitive to that. I'm not saying that in a bad way. But um, she's like, I'll pay whatever it takes. I'll just pay. And anyway, I tried... It wasn't the time to try to rationalize with her. We had to make a decision. We prayed with her. We tried to stop the bleeding as much as we could, but she ultimately died um, in the clinic. So this woman was very angry at me. And, uh, you know, I tried to explain to her the kind of things you have to think about are it's not just the money that it's whether they would have been able to save her. It would have cost several thousand dollars, which in Haiti is a fortune, and she probably would have died anyway. And even if she didn't die, we were leaving in two days. And what, who was going to take care of her? Who was going to bear the responsibility of her? The pastor of the church cer certainly could not. Um, her family lived in this poor slum. It, the thought of this thing coming out in a positive way was just unthinkable to me. And so I tried to help her understand that, but ultimately she didn't And anyway. I guess I, I didn't really see her much after that. She was somebody who didn't go to our church. and so. But I began to think, is there a way to really help people understand this better, what kinds of things we really need to think about when we have to make these decisions? Often these decisions have to be made quickly, so you need to have your infrastructure in place. You need to have your conceptual model in place. That's something you guys all understand right now. But you also need to have your spiritual foundations in place so that you – have a clear track to the Holy Spirit when you need him to tell you what to do in this immediate situation. Okay, so given the limited resources and financial, human, structural, others, what is, my thought is, what is the most effective way to deliver effective health care to the most people possible who will see the real benefits 
and improve the life situation for Haiti as a whole or for Haiti as a whole community. So this is how I tend to approach these things, is what can I do that's going to be the most effective for the most amount of people using the resources that I have? And for those who just walked in, um, I will make the slide set available if you want to just listen and um, pay attention, or if you want to take notes, that's completely fine. So this is, this is where I work. This is a landfill that is, uh, slum is built upon. Um, this is typical of what it's like in City Soleil where... Um, where we work, this is a man who actually has a super pubic catheter, which I find pretty amazing in Haiti, and he's relieving himself on the street. And so this is the kind of thing that I'm having to deal with. Before I go on, I forgot to ask, how many students do we have here? Okay, and the rest of you, are you um, professionals in practice? How many professionals in practice? Okay, so anybody who's not medically oriented or some way? Okay, and... Can I ask what you do? Excellent. Okay, great. This is the church where we worked at. Um, this is the street we have to go down. The You often see children bathing in that pothole. Um, where the arrow is is the entrance to the compound where we work. Uh, we also have safety as a major concern that we have to think about when we're talking about working in Haiti. So when you think about goals and missions, um, you the most important goal is to turn over the work ultimately to the indigenous people. Support the nationals in letting them minister to their own people. That's really the goal. The goal is to put me out of business. Um, I see short-term missions as an investment strategy. Um, you know, one short-term mission trip to Haiti and, you know, uh, reap, reaped a thousandfold for the Lord. So I take all comers, anybody who wants to come, I don't care what your motivation is. If it's third world tourism, I don't care. Because my job is to provide an environment where the Holy Spirit can work in your life. And that's what I have tried really hard to do on short-term trips. So I do work with existing health systems. We, don't, we try very hard to be sensitive and work with... Um, medical care professionals who are there, support them in their work, support them in their clinics, and use us as sort of backup and learners. I think it's very important to define an exit strategy, know how you're going to put yourself out of work, and then avoid fostering dependence. Now, these things are very hard in Haiti. Um, I don't see the situation changing for a generation, at least, and that's if everything started going really well today. Um, so we have to try to think about really, really long-term, but we do everything we can to try to support the people who are on the ground and try not to foster any more dependency than we really have to. The very first thing that I think is important in how, learning how to allocate resources is to recognize your limitations. The problem that I have had the most with um, people, in, especially physicians, but not only physicians, in taking them to Haiti is to have them bring down the level of care that they're going to be providing and understand what people really need from them. Uh, we see lots of doctors and, and other mid-level practitioners who come down and just like this OB who wanted to do everything because she, her mindset was back at Duke. I mean, she was thinking when we could have saved her at Duke, probably, um, at least her, probably not the baby the way she was bleeding, but anyway, this is really hard thing, and it's hard for people to transition very quickly. Um, so if you don't have preparation before you go there, it's hard for you to get your mind in that focus. We have at least 10 meetings before we go uh, over a six-month period where I try to talk to people, give them scenarios, the kind of things you're going to see, the kind of things you're going to – resources you're going to have to use there, what you're going to be expected to do to try to help them understand better. And it still is difficult, and it took me some time, too. For example, I was working in pediatric cardiology. We would see a blue baby down there, which is a baby that has a congenital heart defect. And I knew that this, from the way that the child presented, that they had a congenital heart defect. There's no way you could do open-heart surgery at all in Haiti, much less pediatric open-heart surgery. It, it just can't happen. Um, there's no reliable medical hospital that has the kind of equipment you need. The kind of There's nobody in Haiti who could perform that operation. Um, it would have to be someone from the outside. There's, the anesthesia isn't um, reliable. 
there, the, po the post-op care would not be there. These kids need to be followed up, you know, over a lifetime. Really, we have a whole adult congenital heart clinic now at Duke for survivors of congenital heart who used to die when they were before their 20s. Now they're living into adulthood and presenting with a completely different set of follow-up issues. So, you know, when I, I might have thought, well, I mean, this kid has a VSD, the ventricular septal defect. This is very easy to correct. You could even cure this. But first of all, we don't have the diagnostic equipment to do that. Um, we could possibly get an echocardiogram, but it would cost money. And what am I going to do with that information? What am I going to do with that? I know the kid already has some sort of, you know, cyanotic congenital heart defect. I can't fix that. And um, so it's possible you could get a CT scan. There's, I think, two in the whole country. Um, Follow-up care is just a huge issue. Uh, in Haiti, we have three times the number of doctors at our hospital alone in my hospital than Haiti has in the whole country. So this is the kind of system that I'm working in down there. So recognizing my limitations is going to be huge. And if I don't recognize my limitations up front, I'm not only not going to be effective and do the best I can with what I have, I'm going to be very frustrated. And I'm, I'm going to get burned out. I'm going to be trying to do all this stuff um, that I can't do, and I'm not going to be effective for the Lord. And so that's really the first step is to try to um, recognize your limitations. So when we work in Haiti, these are some of the, um, the limitations. You need to understand the existing system that you're working in. Now, some of you who go to work in other countries aren't going to have these kind of scenarios, but I think it's good to understand sort of the worst-case scenario because then you can adapt and adjust what I have to say to something hopefully that won't be as bad as this, but still the principles um, are still the same. Some of these statistics I gave um, earlier, I think I gave most of them earlier. So work within your existing system. So what I found when I was first going to Haiti was that a lot of people were like this, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Here I am, pediatric cardiologist MP. I'm going to Haiti, and what I'm ending up doing is um, prescribing hypertension medicine or giving oral rehydration to kids. Now, I've, I've got a pretty, you know, highly technical skill set here, um, but what I'm ending up doing is teaching moms how to rehydrate their kids. You know why? That's what they need. They don't need me to be able to, you know, assist in, in a VSD repair. They need to prevent diarrhea in their kids. They need to get their kid to age five, so hopefully they have a better chance of making it um, beyond that critical period. But I see lots and lots of providers who go down there you know, wanting to ram their skill set into the needs that are there, and you could do that. I mean, I went with a um, thoracic, cardiothoracic surgeon one time, and, you know, the first thing he asked when we got off the plane was, you think sometime we could do, you know, cabbages here? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Let's see what you think at the end of the week. Um, LAUGHTER you know, that when that sort of, you know, we have the two-hour blackout and you're needing your anesthesia machine and your cautery, et cetera, um, you know, it'll give you a better picture. But, like, this is what was happening. And I was doing it, too. I was doing it, too. So I'm going to give you some examples later on of how I changed that. What we really need to do is this. What can I offer? And I think you will find you have much more to offer than you really realize. And your skill set, whatever it is, is going to be very valuable, but maybe not in the way that you think it's going to be. And I don't know if um, any of you attended the plastic surgery in the jungle thing yesterday. That was so great. Um, I, thought, I thought Lewis was really good. But, you know, what he ended up going was saying, I'll go as a general surgeon to Nigeria, well, what he found out was he was getting all of these burns and wounds and amputations and stuff, and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. This guy trained at, you know, major medical center here in the United States, and he's on the mission field, and he's clueless. So he came back, got the training that he needed. People would think, what do you need plastic surgery? Because he, he thought it was facelifts and stuff. But anyway, he did, he did some, oh, God, it was just so... Inspiring. I, it was just such a great talk to see how he had helped these people 
um, by changing or altering his skill set. Uh, so just think about this. This is your country. Put whatever your country, your ministry here, wherever, and what can I offer? And I'm going to give you some ideas about what you can offer. The way to do that is to begin to think smaller. So my friend who's the cardiothoracic surgeon, I don't think we're going to be able to um, do bypasses here. In fact, while we were there, one um, a career missionary had been there 30 years, actually uh, started having chest pain. <laughs> This whole thing was so funny. He, he faxed his EKG to him in the United States. He's like, you're having an MI right now. You need to get on a plane. And anyway, so he ended up coming on a plane, and he got him, he got him a bypass here in the United States. But he was, like, having an acute MI while he was in flight. <laughs> not, not something I really like to think much about. I certainly don't think that this, the airline, um, flight attendants knew that. <laughs> or uh, anyway, it was the Lord provided the Lord watches out for babies and fools. That's what I say. So think smaller. Think smaller. Um, begin thinking smaller. I think it's great to have ideals. I think it's great to have dreams. But when you actually go to put these things in reality, look at it in a different kind of way and keep that stuff in the background. Okay? Think small, and we're going to talk about doing that. What kind of things won't really help? Well, redistribution of the wealth, we all know, is not going to... I mean, we have enough food to feed the world. Obviously, this isn't happening. Um, there are many reasons. Some of them are things we could overcome. Other things we can't overcome. So I would just encourage you to find a core group of people, whatever it is, whether if it's a country, okay. I'd encourage you to think smaller, like a community, a group of communities, Try to think how you can change the life for those particular people and begin to have a ripple effect. Now, I don't know what kind of organizations you all are working with. We struggle constantly. I'm chairman of a nonprofit that works in Haiti, you know, with money. Um, we, we work hard for all the money that we get, and I'm grateful to the Lord. He's just been so marvelously gracious to us in providing, but we can, we can use a lot more money than what we get. So I need to think about how am I going to be um, diligent and a good steward to the money that I get for him, for, for his work in Haiti. I could put, you know, a thin layer across the country, or I could really try to change significantly the lives of some people. And I think that's really what my goal is. And I would like to encourage you all to consider that as well. This is the kind of thing your mom probably told you. Your broccoli, they're starving children. It's not like you not eating your broccoli is going to help those starving children. I mean, your broccoli is not going to be shipped to the starving children. It's a mindset, and you should try not to waste things. But redistribution of the wealth is not really the end result. A multitude of projects is not the result either. When I look at organizations that I want to try to support, I think about... Um, what are they really doing? People could say, oh, we have this and this and this and this and list off 15 or 20 projects. But I really want to look and see how effective are those projects? Are they really changing the lives? Are they meeting the goals of the people? Are there long-term goals that they are looking at meeting? Are they looking at trying to support the nationals in taking over these projects? I have a friend who, um, a, a, a person I'm acquainted with, who... Um, this thinking smaller thing and this multitude of projects. This person is, uh, is, in, is in OB and has uh, NGYN and has some interest in cervical cancer. So when we first started going to Haiti, there was this whole cervical cancer thing on their mind. And um, cervical cancer affects about 0.5% of all women in Haiti, which is 0.5% of about 47% of the, the people in Haiti. So it's very, very small number. The people that it does affect, it affects in a very terrible way. They get these fungating lesions, they're stigmatized, and it's a significant problem for those people. But this, I saw this, this group and this organization pushing, pushing, pushing to try to get... Um, a million-dollar grant to work with cervical cancer. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, wow, a million dollars, what we could do with a million dollars in providing clean water, um, in building latrines for people who are having bowel movements in cornfields. And I 
this is my experience with the village we work with. Um, they're defecating in their cornfields. The rain is coming. That's leaching into the groundwater. Um, it's leaching into their streams. Their children are getting diarrhea and other kinds of diseases. And so I'm not criticizing um, necessarily this, this project or this kind of thinking. But what I want people to do is to try to consider a different approach. And my goal is to be obedient. And that would be your goal as well. And we could talk, I could have come in here this morning and said obedience, and we could have all stopped and prayed for an hour. But it's really hard. I don't know. Um, you know, last night when he was talking, you know, about the prison doors being open, I'm just like, wow, that's so great. And I believe that God works like that. And I know he works like that now. And I know he works like that in the world today. He just hasn't worked like that with me. And I would guess most of you have not heard the voice of God, or most of you have not been carried up in a chariot of fire like Elijah. So I just, I need a, I need a way to understand what God wants me to do. And so this is, I think, um, through some experiences I had, like with that, that OB, some other things I'll talk to you about, I think the Lord has helped me understand what he would want me to do is to try to make the lives better for a group of people. And in doing that, we can have this ripple effect that he talked about last night. Enthusiasm and goodwill, in, and here I will be kind of stern. They only go so far, really. Um, I think it's great for people to have good intentions, but, uh, you know, it, I think Christian shoddy is still shoddy. And we have an obligation to the God of the universe to serve him in the most effective way that we can. And so I think the fact that you have good intentions and goodwill are excellent things to start with. But after this class, that's not going to be good enough for the Lord. Okay, you're going to have more information, and he's going to want you to think about whether you implement what I'm talking about. You're going to have this information, and he's going to be using it in your lives. So just remember, we are obligated to the Lord of the universe to do the best that we can for him. Okay, so what will help? What are the basic needs that we can provide that will affect the posit positively the lives of most people? Well, in Haiti, it's, it's obvious. I mean, you don't have to, you just have to get off the plane and you'll see it. Access to clean water, food, and sanitation. Access to basic health care, income and employment. They have an 87% unemployment rate in Haiti. Um, and then, of course, the gospel. And it's listed last year, but really it's first and foremost for everybody. So when we think about those statistics that I talked about earlier, what can we do? And if, if I was interested, let's say, in pediatrics, which I am, um, although... I, it's not my only focus. What could I do to get those kids to that fifth birthday, which will give them a better chance of being able to survive? And that's one of the things we put our focus into. Well, it was access to clean water, food, and sanitation. We see a lot of children in Haiti with very serious malnutrition. Um, I've seen children die in front of my eyes for nothing more than lack of food, um, it's, it's really, really difficult. Uh, so I think when we think about things like building a multi-million dollar hospital to try to treat something that affects less than 1% of half of the population, it just causes me to pause and think. Okay, And that's really what I would want you to do, is pause and think. And I'm going to talk to you about what you can do in that time when you're pausing in just a few minutes. So... As I said earlier, this is serious business. When we talk about helping one group of people, we are talking about not helping another group of people. And this is really hard thing to do. And there aren't a lot of people, I think, who can bear the kind of burden that I'm talking about. If the Lord calls you to bear that kind of burden, then you need to always do it in the context of remembering the sanctity of life. And even now, I, I am struggling <laughs> to try to talk about this topic in, in a way that is going to be effective because it is so serious. I am a, a really tender-hearted person. Um, on the other hand, and some people would say, God, April is, you know, I, I'm just very sensitive. I'm, I'm very caring and compassionate. And 
for me to be put in a leadership role like the Lord has in the last eight or nine years to make these kind of decisions is just not the kind of thing I would have ever thought. First of all, going to Haiti. My idea of camping is the Holiday Inn. I mean, really. <laughs> um, you know, I'm 53 now. It's getting harder and harder. We have to take a canoe ride to a dugout canoe to this village. Then we have to hike two miles. They have no latrines. The first time I went, I'm like, you know, I have my little shovel with me, and I'm imagining sitting on this log. and I mean, the whole thing. And this is not what I imagine myself doing. But anyway, the Lord has been gracious, and he has brought me this far. I, I, I still, it's not the kind of thing. I'm actually going to Haiti Week for Monday. Um, and it's, it's going to be a really good trip. But I have, I'm going to the village. I'll have to sit on that latrine that they, they built. It, the hole isn't in the right place. And Anyway, and so um, I do think it's the kind of thing we have to always remember, that the Lord will give you the strength you need. I am a testimony to that. Okay, so the, remembering the sanctity of life, um, I'm going to give you a model that I think might help you when you have to allocate resources among people that you don't have enough for. So here's an example um, looking at um, our short-term clinic, we have five doses of rocephin left, and I'm looking at two children. Both of them have a pneumonia. I think they both need it. The one child is uh, two years old and weighs nine pounds. This is a real case scenario. The other child is five years old and weighs about 22 pounds. Um, the first child's mom has three other kids, all older than the, the uh, baby. The other one just has one other child. So we're nearing the end of our supply, and I've got to decide who's going to get the antibiotic. And likely the child that doesn't get it is not going to live. We're in a very remote area. We can't refer to a hospital. We can't give money to go to a local clinic. They don't have a lot of rocephin down there. Um, we actually have to hide it on our person to get it in the country. And so, and if you do have it, even it's expensive here, but it's even more expensive there. So this is the kind of thing I've got to decide. So as I'm thinking about it, you know, I look at the baby who's two years old and weighs nine pounds and obviously very, very malnourished. The chances of them surviving this pneumonia is going to be low, even with the rocephin. Um, they're you know, their reserves are depleted. The other one likely has a better chance. They have more resources external to themselves. Their mom has a little bit more. Um, so I've got this valuable resource here, and I've got to decide who's going to get it. Um, we gave it to the older child, and I don't really know what happened to the younger one, but it haunts me still. So... Uh, these are the kind of things that you might have to make decisions. And as I'm saying, they're really, really hard. So how do we go about thinking about them? Well, I look at sort of risk and volume. And these are guidelines for you. This is not, you know, firm. And you'll see in just a few minutes when I give you really specific guidelines about how to use them. I look at what is the risk for whatever the issue is. And what is the volume of that particular issue? So let's use the cervical cancer thing. The risk is high. A woman getting cervical cancer in Haiti is likely to die. On the other hand, they don't have radiation therapy. Um, they don't have access really to chemotherapy for some of the wealthier people, but the average peasant doesn't. And, and I couldn't imagine giving chemotherapy in Haiti. Um, with these people going back to their villages and being neutropenic, I mean, I just I can't imagine these things. But someone, an oncologist coming there, this is what they would think. Well, maybe we can give her some 5-FU or maybe... Like, oof, I don't know. Let's think about this. So if we look at that, we have a risk is high, but the volume is low, okay? So we have a high volume, I mean a high risk, but a low volume. Yes? Yeah, the risk of whatever the problem is. Yes, a risk, is it something that's going to potentially cause you serious health problems, risk of dying, whatever. Um, so as we look at some examples of these, these would be kind of things like, Infectious disease, malnutrition, waterborne. It's high risk. If you get these things, you're likely to have some serious medical problem, maybe die. And there's high volume. Everybody there has it. So let's put a high amount of resources towards it. If we have a high risk but a low volume, you could make the case 
for doing something, putting some level of moderate to high resources um, in that area. However, you have to think about what is the ultimate outcome going to be for the patient, for the community, for your level of resources. So look at things like malignancies. Um, if you have a patient, and I'm going to show you an example in a few minutes, of a, uh, who has a malignancy that potentially surgery could help and cure, and you have some resources that you could put for it, even though the volume is low, if you can potentially cure this with an influx of acute resources, it might be worth considering, okay? When you think about low risk, low volume, there's really not a lot of, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. If you've got low risk, it's likely that even if the problem continues on, people aren't going to have any significant health problems. These are kind of things like rashes. We get a lot, a lot of people with rashes. Sometimes I can't even see the rashes. Um, and so, or people, we have a lot of lipomas in Haiti. A lipoma in isn't really going to kill you if it's not in a critical point uh, place, but we have, see a lot of people with lipomas. Um, you know, they have them on their heads, their scalps, their peripheral air, um, their extremities. I mean, they're not great, but I, I wouldn't spend a lot of resources trying to take lipomas off of people. They're not really going to hurt them, and I try to think about other things. On the other hand, I know they're stigmatized. I know it makes life difficult for them, but they're living. These children aren't living. Other women, the women who are giving birth to children, they're not living. So this is where this decision-making comes in, and you have to begin to alter your, your way you're looking at things, but you also have to have the courage to make this decisions. And we're going to talk about some ways you can do that. So low risk, but high volume. I would likely spend more resources on this kind of thing. We see a lot of hypertension in Haiti, um, and it's not because they have uh, coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis. It's genetic. Um, most of the, you, you will rare, never see an obese patient in, or person in Haiti in the peasant population. The way you know someone is wealthy is they're overweight. Um, and, I, I mean, I'm not saying that facetiously. We also have a lot of filariasis, elephantiasis. Ultimately, that's not going to kill you necessarily, but um, um, Dr. Lewis showed a guy, I've seen these, uh, a guy with a 45-pound scrotum from filariasis. I mean, I've seen a guy with a basketball-sized scrotum from filariasis. I mean, he's not going to die from that. But, I mean, that's a significant problem and could potentially cause some other things. But we see a lot of it, so it might be worth putting some resources. Now, none of this is set in stone, and this kind of thing can move around. But it gives you sort of a model to begin to think about risk and volume, how you could potentially use this in thinking about what, does, what you're going to do, how you're going to treat people. The other thing to think about is when it's not a priority for you, is it something that you could specifically raise money for? And I'm going to give you a very good example for this. Um, we get a lot of people... Um, I don't want, well, I'm not going to be politically correct. I'll just say it. A, a lot of people want to designate donations for specific things. And some of the reasons they want to do that are not necessarily um, reasons I would want them to. They want their name on a hospital wing or um, they want to see something that, has, that their money has gone to. I really, really try to um, talk to my supporters and say, you know, the best thing you could do for us is give your money undesignated. Um, we're out there on the front lines. You've trusted us with our work. We see what the priorities are. They change from day to day. If you've designated money for, um, you know, to build a, a clinic area, and we've are just had this great need come up where um, a lot of pregnant women are losing their babies because they don't have food and we need to start a food program, we can't really do that because you've designated your money for this clinic. And so I really try to encourage people to give money undesignated, to find organizations that they trust to give money to them. These people are on the front line. They know what the priorities are and let them do that. However, I am still willing to work with those other kind of people um, for the Lord's sake. So if you think that there's a need that you have, 
Like if someone gave a million dollars to build a cervical cancer program and they only wanted that, I would still do that because it would help some people in Haiti and that money is not going to go for anything else. They're going to give it to you or they're not going to give it. So that is another thing to consider. This is the real world. This is what we live in. I think in order for us to be effective for the Lord, we need to learn to manage the resources that we have available for us. So when it isn't the priority you would have, is it something that you know someone would give money specifically for? I'll give you an example. So when you talk about the people that are going to make these decisions, which it might be some of you, how do you know who these people are? Well, this is what I have found helped me in the last eight or ten years. You need to have somebody who you feel very strongly is uh, cemented in their relationship with the Lord um, and the Holy Spirit. We have to have people who can listen and know when the Holy Spirit is moving. And this afternoon, I think it's this afternoon or tomorrow, there's a session here called Relying on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be there in the front row. I need all the help I can get with helping me discern what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to me. These people need to be strong in spiritual disciplines. They have to be diligent in reading the word and prayer. They need to be able to minister and disciple other people. They need to be respected as leaders. People need to say, I don't understand what April's doing right now, but I'm going to trust her. And I have had, I mean, this kind of thing has happened a lot, where we've been in situations where I've had to make a decision. Because my team has come to know who I am, what my priorities are, how I think about it, they're like, I don't really know what we're doing, but I'm just going to follow her. So, And then later on we talk about it and help them understand. So this is the kind of person you need to be thinking about to make these kind of decisions. They, the way that they become respected as a leader is they are experienced in the problems that you're having. I could no more have done this the first or second or third time I went to Haiti than, than I could have all. Um, you have to see these problems. You have to understand them. You have to seek the Lord in doing them. Help him, let him help you understand what are you trying to teach me through this experience. Um, we had a, a situation a few years ago where Haiti was in political turmoil. We decided to take a trip, trip after prayerful, prayerful consideration. And um, while we were down there, this gang war started right outside that clinic where on that street you saw there was shooting, and we were all huddled in the corner. And I don't say this to, like, promote myself as a hero. I was scared to death. I mean, I was really scared. And I, I really, I will be a martyr if the Lord called me to be one. I hope I would be able to do that. But I don't feel like he has. And until that time, I need to try to keep myself in a position to keep working for him. Anyway, we had to evacuate. And... Our host like rushed us out past this dead man, past these people who had been killed. My team was really upset. They felt like we should have stopped and helped the dead man and his family. And um, it just, I knew that this wasn't what we should do. Um, so we decided not to do it. We went back to the hotel, tried to understand these things. Well, I think the Lord gave me that experience for a very, really particular reason. Later on, we had to really think a lot about safety issues in Haiti, and it was clear to me what they were. They weren't theoretical anymore. I mean, we had seen bullets flying by us, so we needed to prepare ourselves for this kind of situation. Our church decided to have it written down. Um, people understand. They move forward with the program, understanding that it's not theoretical that you could lose your life down there. And is this what we as a church want to continue to do? So they have to have experience in dealing with those problems. Experience in dealing with difficult issues. You know, I started my career in the intensive care unit. I've been sort of on the front line with people in crisis situations my whole life. Um, my friend, just two weeks ago, uh, asked me to be his uh, health care power of attorney, you know, to make the sort of uh, pull the plug kind of decision. And I'm, I'm like, sure. And so he went to his lawyer, just told me this a couple nights ago. And he had this form that had all these options, you know, do you want this, this, and this. And he's like, I don't need all that. He's like, I, I really trust April. She'll know when to pull the plug. She has really good judgment. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, he trusts me, and I do. I would not let him suffer needlessly. I have an idea of what, what he could survive, what he might not survive, what the consequences would be, and I could make that decision. Um, it, would, it would be really hard, and I would be crying and very upset, but I could do it. So it has to be somebody who's able to make those decisions 
even if you're experiencing the emotions of the moment, you still make them. This OB was not in that place. They were experiencing the emotions of the moment, but they weren't able to make that decision. I, I cried that night, just head in my hands, sobbing about this woman who died. But I felt very confident that we had done the right thing. But my heart was still heavy about it. But I felt sure that I had made the right. I didn't question. My heart wasn't heavy because I thought I had made the wrong decision. I was deeply sad that this woman and her <coughs> child um, had died. So it has to be somebody who can has the ability to make those decisions. So when we talk about these decisions, remember, you always have something to offer people. That baby that we did not give the medicine to, and by the way, the mother didn't know all this situation. We were, the team leaders were in, we actually went in the pharmacy, we all stopped, we all talked about it, and then we all just prayed. And we tried to really ask God to come into our presence and help us with this terrible decision. So that's something we'll talk about later, but the, the mother didn't really know. You always have the great physician to offer. More than, I mean, a lot of times I have seen people who are imminently dying in Haiti. We pray with them. We talk to the family. We people I've led people to the Lord with my translator who are, you know, staring at the threshold of eternity. And, I mean, what greater gift could we give to them? Um, I In the book, there's a, um, a story about this woman who was dying at our clinic. She was a Christian, but um, we prayed with her. And, I mean, I will never forget that experience. The, just the spirit was so clearly upon us. Um, so remember, you can always, always offer the great physician uh, to these people. So you never have nothing to offer. Even though I gave you this model this high, low risk volume, each, individ- each decision is individual. And I am not going to say, you know, we should never do cervical cancer in Haiti or we should never do cabbages in Haiti. I think if you see a kid and you think that you know somebody at home who would pay for them to come back to the States um, and you have a way to do that and there's some situation the Lord is leading you to do that, you know, obedience is what it's about. And I am not going to judge people. I want you to pray and be obedient. And that is the main thing. So evaluate each decision individually. But think about it when you evaluate it in the context of this other stuff that I've talked about. Seek the Lord at each juncture. This is where you need that strong, solid spiritual disciplines. You have to have, you have to be able to say, oh, I've got to stop right now and pray. Instead of thinking later, why didn't I pray? You've got to have these things ready and available for you. Your toolbox has got to be right there with you. Seek guidance from the Holy Spirit as to what community, what group, what area God wants you to be committed to, how he wants you to go about doing this, and consider the decision in in light of the risk volume guidelines that I gave you before. Remember to always remain compassionate. It's very easy for people who have to make these decisions to compartmentalize themselves and to, you know, sort of build up a wall around them. I have to make these hard decisions. I'm just, it's too hard. I can't feel anymore. That's not how the Lord wanted us to to be ministers of the gospel. So pray that God will continue to keep your sensitive heart and help you to bear the burden that you need to, and he will. He has with me, and he will. So let me talk about a woman that um, um, is an example. We had this woman several years ago. She was 44, had this huge fungating mass, and I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. Um, We felt sure that it was uh, benign because she had had it for eight years, and there was no evidence of metastases, and and she had been living. She was relatively healthy considering she wasn't um, malnourished, but she was very stigmatized by the community. And, and, I mean, this thing smelled terrible. It looked terrible. And I'm going to show you the picture, and I'm not going to keep it up there because, I mean, it's pretty gross. But it, it was really sad. When she came in, she had this um, – she was sitting in the line. Everyone comes at the same time to the clinic in the morning. It's not like, you know, Duke Hospital where we have a sign, if you haven't been called in 10 minutes, please check with us. Um, LAUGHTER 
No, it's all about customer service now. Um, anyway, they all come at 6 a.m., you know, 100, 200 people, and they don't mind waiting eight hours to see the doctor. So uh, anyway, we saw she had this, this uh, bandana over her, and no one really noticed it because she had this bandana until she actually was brought into the room. And my colleague, who's an uh, oncologist at um, University of North Carolina, he looked at it and just like, marched into my room. <laughs> April, you need to come in here. So, um, which is good because I pretty much had an idea immediately what to do, and he was stunned. So this is what she looked like. Um, we were pretty sure that this was not cancer. What we weren't sure, uh, because she had had it for so long, but we weren't sure of was if it had, um, if it was encroaching, it was definitely encroaching. Her trachea was just starting to be deviated, but if it was encroaching on the bone or if it was just a superficial lesion that was huge, we couldn't really feel around, and it was all embedded in this whole area of her face. So... We knew we couldn't do anything about this in Haiti. Okay, there's there's no doctor that would be able to do this. Although we tried. Uh, over the we decided we couldn't do anything for her right then, but we would think about. We gave her some antibiotics, but I didn't really think that would help. We cleaned it off some, but anyway, we talked about it as a team and decided that this would cost probably two or three thousand dollars for us to try to see if we could find someone to fix this. And, and if they could even get it off. I mean, this would this would take a skilled surgeon even here in the United States. And I've seen parotid tumors like this here in the United States where people have just let them grow and grow. And if you were at Lewis's talk yesterday, you saw many, many of those. Uh, and, and even if you can get them off, you often have, you know, complications or um, nerve palsies or whatever. But anyway, so we we thought we probably could get someone to donate the money. I mean, seeing a picture like this is going to touch people, okay? I mean, they're going to go, whoa, um, even people who aren't interested in missions at all. So we thought, okay, let's go home, try to see if we can find somebody who will give us some money. Maybe we can try to help this woman because it's not like they're going to give us $1,000 to work with the latrines or water. I mean, they're going to give us $1,000 for this. So... Anyway, through a lot of working, 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 we were able to find money to get her evaluated. Well, nobody in Haiti, we, we sent her to five different mission, um, mission clinics because none of the national hospitals had anybody who could do anything about this. Um, and, and to be quite honest, I didn't trust um, the nationals to try to do this kind of thing. I had seen, um, you know, a child who was had just a catastrophic neurological defect from... Um, someone trying to repair a cleft palate who didn't know what they were doing. Now the kid was like in four-point restraints and some with bed sores and some, um, you know, and and dealing with the mentally ill in Haiti is a whole separate issue. It's terrible. Um, but anyway, I mean, the kid would have been better off with a cleft palate and living, you know. So anyway, we found... Um, none of the mission people we went to, they didn't have resources, didn't have post-op care. Their anesthesia machine wasn't working. I mean, this is the whole thing. Well, the Lord is just so <laughs> great. Um, as it turned out, this Duke doctor, surgeon, was down in Haiti on a six-month sabbatical. I didn't know about it. A friend at church sent me their blog, just, oh, I know you go to Haiti. Here's a blog. I'm like, Dick McCann's in Haiti. Oh, my God. So we, we sent her to him. He's like, I think I can fix this. Um, and anyway, this is what happened. So he, it was just so great. So we decided to invest the money in trying to fix this woman because we knew that this money wasn't going to be given for anything else. So this is one of those times where if you, it's not your priority, but you're pretty sure you can get money, this woman's life is going to be changed. Um, this is what he said. Uh, she first went over to the surgery ward to show off how good she looks. I took out her suture. She doesn't have to hide anymore, and she is really grateful for providing her opportunity. So this is like that ripple effect that I'm talking about. So I've got to speed up here. Remember, Christian community health care is food, nutrition, health care provisions for everybody, basically try to get preventable diseases and empower people. People have this myth that we need to solve people's material needs before we can address them spiritually. Well, I do think it's a terrible thing to go to a starving person with a Big Mac in your hand and say you need the Lord. But I don't think you need to 
wait until you solve people's spirit, um, physical needs before you can bring the Lord to them. Everything we do should be bringing the Lord to them. And I want to give you, I was at Urbana, the Urbana Missions Convention a couple years ago. This was such a great talk. Um, and this is what one of the guys said. This idea of telling and doing has unfortunately been separated into two halves in the church today. We have those who would merely evangelize the lost while failing to recognize and deal with historic inequities that have left blacks floating in storage bins after Hurricane Katrina. Those who would be content with a sinner's prayer while powerlessness and terror per- perpetrate the bondage of poverty. And then we have those who would also merely serve vaccines and food rations to the war-torn streets that run red with blood while failing to recognize that the real change comes when the hearts of women are transformed from the inside out. We have those who would fill the bellies, who would educate the minds, clothe the backs, while men's souls march right into hell. So please remember this. This has to be the gospel at, in York Moore. He was just so great. And that thing is online if, at Urbana. All right, second step. Remember this thing, my skills, trying to cram my skills into Haiti. Look at what the people need in what, instead of what you perceive as your skills. For example, think in terms of population-based problems. Well, as I said before, I have, you know, this great specialized skill set. But what the people in this village needed was latrines. Well, I mean, they needed latrines. So I went on the Internet. There's, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. The WHO has a latrine building schema. We pulled it up, took it to them. Well, they already knew how to build latrines. We just needed to add one little thing to them. So remember, my skill set was providing the education to them to help put this project together and to try to raise money to support it. We didn't have to build the latrines. They knew how to build them. They did all the work. We just had to provide them with the financial support and the emotional and spiritual support to do it. So listen to what the people say. Latrines was top on their list, okay? Put your skills on the table. Remember, you have education. You have resources here. You have access to knowledge. Most of the people you'll deal with in third world countries don't have the same kind of educational experiences that you have. You can help design a project. They can help carry it out. This is your skill set, okay? Um, and don't, don't be deceived by people who say, just let the na- nationals identify what their problems are. If someone came to me and said, in this village, we need a computer lab, but they're out pooping in the cornfield, I'm like, you know what, let's think about this. Do you really need this computer lab? Just because you see all your friends in Port-au-Prince with computers, do you really, and my, my skill would be to try to help them understand why computers aren't your number one priority, okay? So consider that too. For us, these are the priorities we determined. Safe disposal of human waste, pregnancies and birth, getting children to five years old, access to clean water, and try to get subsistence food allotments. We aren't trying to get people rich here. We want them to be able to subsist. I think that's a reasonable goal for the next generation in Haiti. So this is, um, this is a group of Haitians that I work with. Um, my organizations, we, they help me identify what their um, priorities were. Latrines was the priority, and so we started to work on that. We got some money. They built the latrines. They built, this is the, the boss here. They hired their own um, supervisor. He actually makes his own concrete blocks. He had to b- move all this stuff across the river in the dugout canoe. And so these are people who now are enjoying disposal of human waste. Even though the hole is not in the right place, it still goes down. So that's really what's important. (laughs) So that's just a general idea of the kind of things you can think about. Just to help you remember and try to get a perspective, just think that over the time we've been in this room, 537 (laughs) children have died across the world of preventable diseases. If they had vaccines, if they had nutrition, if they had um, correct hydration, treatment for diarrhea, they wouldn't have died. We have 332 people, most of them children, who have died because they had waterborne diseases just in the time that we have been sitting here talking about this. And then we have about 461 people who have died without hearing the gospel. These are the people that Chuck were talking about last night, the people in this area over here that didn't get any light just in the time that we've been sitting here together. 
this might be how some of you feel, or you might talk to some people who feel this way. And I really encourage you to think about this cartoon because it's powerful. You have this person saying, I'd like so much to get rid of hunger on earthward, but what is one person to do? And yet across the world you have all these people saying, what is one person to do? What is one person to do? And then one person could be you. This is a great song um, I just want to close with. It's um, by Jeff Treese. He's a kind of a country gospel singer. It's, he says, shout it from the rooftops, proclaim it from the streets. Tell your friends and neighbors, tell everyone you meet. We all need a savior, but we're running out of time. He's coming back at midnight. It's 11.59. And each one of you are the people who are going to work in that last minute to get us to the great... The, the completion of the Great Commission. Our goal is not to save people. I hope people do get saved. We have to tell people what Jesus did for them, and the Holy Spirit will work in that. Too often times I think we as Christians think we have to somehow see the result. You have to just bring the gospel to people. That is what the Lord has called you to do. Bring the gospel to them, and he will do the rest. I want to thank you so much for your attention. Um, I have, if you want to stay around and ask questions, we have a few minutes. If not, I'll be glad to stay up here and talk to you. So thank you all very much.